You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Linda Alkoff. Linda is a professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center and visiting research professor at Australian Catholic University. She has written or edited over 10 books that focuses on themes ranging from social identity and race, epistemology and politics, to sexual violence, Foucault, and Latina issues in philosophy. Her latest book is entitled The Future of Whiteness. In this episode, we talk about whiteness. What is it? Is exceptionalism inherent in it? What is its future? And so much more. Hello, Linda, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm doing fine. Nice to hear from you, Maisha. Likewise, likewise. Linda, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I took a course in it and I got sort of addicted. It was like crack cocaine, you know. <laughs> Just you real but before that, when I was a kid, my mother and I used to sit up till two or three in the morning talking about impossible large questions of the universe. She was just like that and, and I was too. And I, I read a lot of novels as a teenager like, you know, Dostoevsky, the kind that raised philosophical questions and I, I don't know, I just was drawn to these questions that you know, that are way too large for anybody to reasonably expect that they could answer them, but but are important nonetheless. What was the class that you took that got you addicted, addicted? You know, it was the class of 19th century philosophy. It was totally European, but it started out with Edmund Burke, Reflections on the Revolution in France, where he was attacking the French Revolution. And then it went on to Hannah Arendt, who set up this hierarchy of working class people on the bottom and creatives and artists on the top. And everything we read in that class, I swear, I just thought they were so wrong, so mm. wrong. And even as, you know, a young person taking her first philosophy class, I was convinced <laughs> that somebody needed to explain to these people. Uh, you know, so it, it really got me going. And, and got me intrigued. These were the dominant ideas out there. These were the influential works out there. And they were so wrong about so many things that I I just got hooked on wanting to be part of the conversation. And I felt, you know, the conversation really needed to expand to some to some sectors of the population that it had not included ever. So that's interesting because you know, some people may say, well, you, you took a course, a philosophy course on race, or you took a philosophy course on feminism, and that was the thing that got you hooked. But you're saying that you took this course, and it was because you disagreed with them, or you felt that they were wrong, and that was the thing that drew you. Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently who was saying that when she took her first philosopher class, philosophy class, she felt like, wow, I'm a philosopher. She really felt connected to the discipline. She felt like it opened up possibilities for her. 
And I, I really <laughs> uh, reacted to the discipline. You know, I mm. reacted to it in a kind of critical, negative way. But that, of course, is a philosophical mode of being: is to is to critique, to look at the assumptions, to consider alternatives that are not being given their fair share um, of space. And uh, so my my reaction was a very reactive reaction and yet one that drew me in nonetheless. You have a new book out called The Future of Whiteness. Very interesting title. So I want to talk about uh, some of the ideas in that book. My first question must begin exactly what is whiteness, right? So you say that that whiteness is a historical and social construct rather than a singular idea. What do you mean by this? Well, there's been some really good historical work now on tracing sort of how whiteness emerged in the United States in particular, but in European colonialism. And you can trace it to certain legal judgments that have been made to privilege European Americans, for example, settlers, for example, in certain societies to give them economic advantages and political privileges over others. So you can really kind of find the origin of this idea of whiteness in, in legal judgments and in these histories. But I don't, I think sometimes people are making a mistaken conclusion from that, that those events constituted white identity and you know, are sort of the originary moment and sufficient cause of everything that white identity has ever meant or can ever mean into the unending future. And I think that that's a mistake. It's, it's sort of like taking a an essentialist position or a certain kind of realist position to whiteness. I think whiteness emerged. It had multiple causes. It had... Uh, it was constituted in multiple experiences from people at the top to people who were pretty far down the scale of of labor and power yet you know there was a unified uh, experience of being settlers of being immigrants sometimes fleeing persecution sometimes looking for new opportunities and also being told that being european was an advantage, a privilege, being part of the vanguard of the human race. So, you know, there's multiple experiences that involve racism and sort of colonial ideologies about the, you know, the, the human race differences and who's the vanguard and who's behind. But there's multiple experiences. So we, I think we have to understand whiteness as a plural rather than a singular as something that has changed as something that will continue to change and as something that is not something we just find but something that we make hmm. and its future will be dependent on what we make of its history and its present configurations so as, as, a, as a black woman in America, I, I've just grew, I grew up in a time in which we embraced our blackness, right? It's, it's something that I'm, I'm proud of. It's something that I embrace. Why do you think whites try to distance themselves from whiteness? 
Well, it's a whole different ball game, isn't it? Because uh, <laughs> the more history you know, the more you find out about unfair privileges, atrocities, genocides, colonial annexation of land, you know, holocaust over and over that are that were justified on the grounds of white superiority and in which whites, even poor whites, participated in and sometimes gained some economic advantage out of those atrocities. So there's a, it's painful and there's a question of responsibility about that. I, I think it has a lot to do with why in the United States we say, you know, history doesn't matter, that we can just escape our history, because if we look at our history, it's, you know, it raises a number of moral and political questions about the particular distributions of land and goods and resources in existence today, that they, the particular distributions we've got today are based on that old history. You know, it's obvious people find this uncomfortable, don't know what to do, with it, don't know how to emotionally relate to these histories. And, you know, and then there's also the, the sort of worry that whiteness is associated with white bread, mayonnaise, blandness, yeah. <laughs> culturelessness, uh, an amalgamation of, of rich and thick ethnic identities that just got flattened out through intermarrying in this hemisphere in such a way that it doesn't really mean anything interesting or substantive anymore. But I think the main reason really has to do with the difficult history of whiteness and people's desire to escape the implications of being tied or being being who they are today and having the benefits that they have today in relation to that history. So some people may be thinking, hey, you guys are talking about blackness, whiteness, all these identities are just problematic. Right, whether they're racial, whether they're ethnic, or whether they're gendered, they disunite us as America, and we just need to be one. What is your response to that? Yeah, that's such a bizarre uh, view, but I know it's a it's a common view. Um, difference was not, you know, created by philosophers of race. Difference is something we try to understand. Difference has always existed. It was given a certain ranking analysis by colonialism that decided to put you know people in ranks and value-laden hierarchies and yes we should rethink those value-laden hierarchies and ranks by which we organize human difference but difference is real our relationship to for example slavery in the United States it makes quite a difference if you can imagine your ancestors being enslaved or if you worry that your ancestors perhaps were slave owners or slave masters or if you were a family that were bystanders or, or came later that's a different emotional reaction to those histories that will probably generate a, a different set of actions on your part so those differences are not something that are theoretical constructs. They are real as a feature of the way in which we interact with our worlds and our histories and with each other and the way in which we live our lives. The, you know, so I think I take what I call a realistic realism 
about racial identities, ethnic identities, and gender identities. It's realistic because it understands all identities as historical products that are changeable and changing, and who knows what the future will bring. But but it's it's a realism in the sense of acknowledging that these are not things that we can wish out of existence. These are part of our social realities and our psychological individual realities as well. For some people, even if they will concede to the point that our identities do not disunite us, could be the case that identity politics do. Well, I, I think that the, the truth of the matter is that what has disunited us is a refusal to acknowledge the truths of history and the fact that history still has an impact today. I mean, that's what creates disunity between people who just talk past each other and can't understand one another. I think, you know, when identity politics was first sort of thought about, I think one of the first places was in the Combahee River Collective writing in the 1970s, a collective of mostly African-American lesbians. And what they were arguing was that identity has a political relevance. They weren't arguing that identity um, entails one particular kind of politics or that identity is not complicated because they were women who had been involved in the anti-racist civil rights movements but had been frustrated by the gender politics and the sexual politics. They had been involved in feminist movements but were frustrated by the race politics and the sexual politics. So they were fully aware that any identity like race or gender or sexuality or class uh, is complicated. Um, and you know, there's multiplicities and there's contradictions and conflicts and differences within each of our identities. And yet, it's still the case <laughs> that, you know, there are different ways that we react to history, to political questions today. People can more readily believe the idea that, that somebody can be walking down the street doing absolutely nothing and get thrown to the ground by the police for no reason and beat up and possibly uh, terribly harmed. Some people find that kind of a, a story incredibly plausible because that's their experience and that's the experience that they're that you know people they know have had their whole lives. And other people find that really implausible and they need a videotape, right? Mm -hmm. They yeah. need like three <laughs> videotapes before they believe that actually happens in the United States of America. And that can make a big difference on juries and prosecutor offices and political campaigns. So your initial starting knowledge and your assessment of what story is credible, credible or plausible and stories that you hear around you has to do with in part your identity that's just a fact that I think everybody sort of knows it's the way it's common sense but there's a real worry that if you start talking like that and if you start acknowledging that identity can make a difference in what we know and what we can know that it will lead to some kind of stalemate of rationality where we can no longer talk to each other or hear each other or come to a united agenda. And that's just not true. We can come to a united agenda 
And the way to do that is precisely by understanding that we are different, differentially situated vis-a-vis -vis these kinds of social experiences. And those of us who don't have that kind of experience need to listen carefully and learn from those who do in regard to any number of things, including the difficulties of white working class life, right? So it, it goes in every direction, but identity often has epistemological uh, implications that have political implications, and that's just a, a real fact of, of, of social life. You talk about two forms of what you call white exceptionalism in your book. What are they and why are they problematic? Well, you know, the way you were talking about sort of black pride or the, the movement that emerged in the 70s of, of black power or black pride, you try to apply that to whiteness and it doesn't quite yeah. work, right? So whiteness, when we try to think about a future multiracial, multiethnic society in which we can have, you know, a rainbow and everybody sort of is acknowledged and has their their place without ranking and rating. Whiteness really stands out as difficult to be included. What I mean, when you think about the category of white pride, right, it's a little worrisome sounding. Yeah. Very different from black pride. So white exceptionalism has been a tradition. It, it, there's both a racist form of white exceptionalism and an anti-racist form. The racist form of white exceptionalism is just, you know, the racist idea that whites are better than and can't mix with. And if, if whites, this was the reason for the laws against miscegenation, if, if whites mix with others, they will be degraded, they will go down. Right, so the idea that whiteness had to remain pure. So white, well, other groups could mix, didn't matter. But whites couldn't mix. So a lot of the laws in the United States were around protecting the borders around whiteness. But there's also a kind of anti-racist exceptionalism about whiteness that also kind of sees whiteness as unable to change, unable to mix, constituted by racism forever. And I think that anti-racist form of white exceptionalism is actually also mistaken both empirically and metaphysically. It's mistaken empirically because there were a lot of things that went into the development of white identity. Racism was an incredibly important central feature of it, but there were others. There was the experience of European immigration, experience of ethnic amalgamation, and so forth. I think it's also wrong metaphysically to think that one originary moment, like the U.S. Constitution, could constitute a form of social identity forever into the future. So I think white exceptionalism is based on some mistaken claims. And even though on, I would agree that whiteness is different from other identities, it poses more challenges to creating a multiracial pluralist future in which we can live without rankings and live without uh, racial vanguardism. But 
I don't think whiteness is forever constituted by some originary racist moment and can never change. The argument that you're criticizing, I've heard it so many times. And even it's this idea in some ways, and it's something that I've never really, I guess, been conscious of, but thinking that just because someone is white, right, that their fate is in some way, is to have this exceptionalism, right, is to have these kinds of beliefs. But I, I wonder, and maybe this, we can address this just a little later, but what do you think needs to change that will, I guess, get rid of this white white exceptionalism? Because it seems as if I think the 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 doubt or the, the, the lack of optimism seems to be that it's so entrenched. And I know if, if anything is a social construction, I mean, it can come in and it can, and it can leave as well. But I, I wonder if it's so just so entrenched in our society for historically and also presently, that is it, is it naive for us to ever think that white exceptionalism will go away? Well, I think we have to avoid naivete, but we also have to avoid fatalism. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was trying to do in the book, is, is construct an account that would be neither naive nor fatalistic. I mean, some people are naive and think that as the United States becomes majority-minority and whites become a minority after 2042, that racism will wither away. As Marx once said, the state would wither away on its own without any kind of social activism or movement. I think that's totally naive. There are plenty of countries that are white minority countries in Latin America, where I'm from, also today in South Africa, in which there is retained an inordinate amount of white or light-skinned political and economic power. So minority status is not going to be a guarantee of of a reduction of racism. But I don't think fatalism is warranted either. I mean, history always surprises us. Hmm. Um, uh, There is no way (laughs) that we can predict exactly, you know, how things are going to play out in in the future. And the truth is, there are multiple causes of whiteness and multiple things going on. There's there's a lot less belief among younger whites today. It's not gone, but it's less than it used to be, uh, according to any opinion survey you consult. A lot less belief in the old ideas of white vanguardism. The, the United States and Europe are not less violent than any other parts of the world. They're not less unjust. They're not more rational than other parts of the world. They're causing the possibility of a global devastation. It's not just a possibility. It's already happening, of course. So the idea that uh, white people are the vanguard of the human race, I think, is no longer plausible to a lot of people. So I, I think question is how to move from that to a better political society which will redress the the injustice of the past and formulate the possibility of new kinds of social relations across group differences. So W. Du Bois is famous for, for coining the, the phrase double consciousness in relationship to blacks. You introduced the notion of white double consciousness. What is that? Yeah, it was it was definitely inspired by Du Bois, but I think white double consciousness is in some ways very different from the kind of black double consciousness he was talking about. I mean, on one level, double consciousness is just 
seeing oneself through two different perspectives as he talked about African Americans seeing themselves always knowing how white racists would see and interpret their actions or their dress or the color of their car or whatever on the one hand but also knowing having access to another perspective their own community perspective that provided some positive alternative in some way to deflect the white racist interpretations so you had a kind of internal perspective that was more reliable and an external perspective though that you always had to negotiate and deal with for whites it's kind of the reverse because the internal perspective is the one that's not very reliable and it's the external perspective that has actually helped to change and improve people's understanding of how they are in the world and who they are in the world so today our public sphere is way more variegated than it was when I was growing up in the south in the 60s you ha you have to do a lot of work today to engage in any kind of media and not come across non-white perspectives on drone warfare or gun violence or the crisis in public schools or racism in the prisons you know something happens and there's going to be voices and perspectives in the public domain that that are going to give different points of view about whatever the current event or current music video is and so whites have access today to non-white points of view much greater than they have in the past and this gives them I think a kind of double consciousness realizing that the white point of view is not the only game in town maybe not the most plausible analysis of some topics and I think whites are more hesitant to make certain kinds of jokes and certain kinds of comments they're a little self-conscious now about saying certain kinds of things at least in, in some um, scenarios depending on who they're talking to because they're aware that what they're saying might be construed differently so that awareness is actually I think a potential for development and movement and um, in a positive way so what's coming externally to whites unlike for African Americans what's coming externally to whites from outside can be a source of reflection and thoughtfulness and give people a motivation to try to understand why is this seen in this way is my point of view maybe not the only one and and I think so I don't think it's a panacea I don't think we should be naive that that this will always lead to enlightenment but it but it is leading to reflection and enlightenment in in many cases so I'm gonna ask for you to put on your prophet hat here what do you think will happen when whites become a minority in the United States which is going to happen in, in a few decades and how do you think this will affect the future of whiteness well that's it's you know a big question I think some will adjust I mean most of our cities today the city you're in the city I'm in right at this moment are majority minority they're uh, minority white cities Los Angeles Chicago Philadelphia Washington DC Miami Atlanta 
New York, I mean, on and on. Four states are minority white, and of course, this is a growing number. So you can already see some of some of the ways in which people are responding. Some people adjust and embrace the the, the new pluralism and and find it an interesting place to live and a, a more you know one that connects you to the rest of the world outside of the United States. And some people will adjust. But there are others, of course, who will try to circle the wagons and create a white space, a gated community or a gated apartment building, in effect. People are moving. They're actually moving to from Florida to North Carolina or to Kansas or to Idaho, right, or to Wyoming to try to seek out a place in which they can rely on the schools their children go to and their workplaces and their neighborhoods and their town council meeting meetings being familiarly white dominant or white only even but that's getting harder to do so I think the strategy of trying to maintain a white only you know workplace and neighborhood and school system is is going to shrink but some people will will continue to try to do that. There's always been a class difference. Poor whites don't have the option of, of opting out of public school and sending their kids to some private school that that's white majority, whereas the upper class does have that option. So I think if people opt for trying to live in the spaces in which they find themselves and live as members of groups that that cannot claim cultural, you know, the right to sort of culturally and politically dominate the space anymore, then, you know, I think people will have to develop some new skills of communication and new skills of coalition and alliance, new skills of understanding the role of identity and difference in our political and social cultures. You mentioned that you're from Central America, Panama to be exact. How has being born in Panama, now living in America, how has that affected your identity and also your politics? Well, it's it's affected it really profoundly. I mean, I experienced the United States certainly with a kind of double consciousness. I find it painful. You know, it's it can be painful. I remember when the United States invaded Panama in 1989. I was in... I was in the United States during that time, trying to reach my family. It took me 12 hours before I could reach anybody. And I was in a situation where I knew my tax dollars were going to support a government that had its guns trained on my family. Some of my U.S. friends here thought, wow, you must be so glad to be in the U.S. now and not in Panama at that moment. And I actually did not feel that way. I felt like I was between <laughs> behind enemy lines, you know. I was so I I've sort of um I think for a lot of us who have a foot outside the United States, we sort of you know, view the United States arrogance militarily and economically and politically as uh kind of painful things to to be noticing on the news every night. But it can also be a, a source of uh, information that this is 
there's really a provincialism in the U.S. Yeah. You know, people think there's only one way to view what's going on. And I think if you have a foot in another country and another family elsewhere, you realize that there's there's more than one point of view. Like all the claims that the United States is the leader of the free world, you know, going to teach the rest of the world about democracy. I mean, it just doesn't carry any plausibility with me. So I consider myself a Panamanian American. I grew up mostly in the United States, but that connection and that perspective has informed me always. Linda, you've written a lot, but you've also been heavily involved in in activism. How do you balance academia and activism? You're the master at this, my No, no, no. no. (laughs) You've been in the game much longer than me. (laughs) You know, it's just a time management issue. You know, you have to... uh, And you you have when you're an activist, it's, it's hard because things have to be done. Yeah now. But I think you have to, if you want to keep a toehold in the academy, you have to realize that your scholarly and your teaching work is also a form of activism. If you can expand the parameters of the questions that people engage with in the classroom and expand the parameters of thinking by your own scholarship, you know, so you can forgive yourself when you skip a demonstration to finish a paper it's okay, but I think the the actual going to the demonstrations, organizing, is you know really informs our philosophy as well. So it's it's worth figuring out how to manage at least some of both. I know this may hurt when I say this, but Bernie, he's unofficially out of the race. Oh. Um, I know that you have been a great supporter of him, given what he stood for. What do you think his supporters should think about and do as they prepare for the November election? Well, I think we have to think about the November election. I don't think we can avoid it, but I think we also have to think well beyond it. I mean, what Bernie's election proved is that leftists who have completely written off the electoral arena are mistaken. We can we can get significant amounts of votes if he hadn't been... Um, outflanked by the Democratic Party and the media, who knows what might have happened. So I think we have to take another look at the electoral arena. I think the the down market kinds of, you know, positions of city council and, and mayor and so forth and congressmen and state legislatures are really important to develop and to look at and to be more you know, less fatalistic about the possibility of somebody with a genuinely left, anti-imperialist, socialist, anti-racist, and so forth agenda winning some of the ele- these elections. And then we have to get smarter about how to do it. But I think also we can't ever put all of our eggs into the basket of electoral politics. The, the, the struggle right now is to... Is to learn how to work in the electoral arena, but basically the most important thing is to build a better left. And Bernie's campaign helped that along by bringing people together who hadn't worked together previously, by creating some opportunities for coalition building and for sort of thinking through how to unify some agendas or how to bring some agendas more in accord with each other. Um, but we need to build on that to create 
better and stronger and more unified to the extent it can be left in this country that is going to be able to be more effective on the electoral arena but beyond the electoral arena to change the, the political culture of the United States. Linda, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking the time out to chat with me. Always good to talk to you, Maisha. Thank you for having me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.